0: This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 7. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, we travel to Southeast Asia, to explore a truly unintended aftermath of what Americans call the Vietnam War and Southeast Asians call the American War. For nearly a decade, starting in the mid 1960s, the United States dropped millions of bombs on Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, permanently changing the landscape in ways nobody thought about at the time and helping give rise to a whole new field of science. Reporter Karen Coates wrote our cover story, and she joins us now to talk about it. Karen, welcome to One Dark. Thank you. So set the scene for us. You traveled to a village in Laos called Sekong. Why did you go and what did you find there?
1: My husband, uh, Jerry Redfern, and I had been working for many years on a book about the aftermath of the U.S. bombing campaign in Laos. And... We'd been poking around the region for several years, and I'd always wanted to do an environmental story on that aftermath because I knew intrinsically that there is an environmental story there from talking to villagers on the ground and seeing how this this bombing campaign has really reshaped their lives and the way they use the land. But I had, oddly, a hard time convincing editors that this was more than just a humanitarian story, and that there was an environmental component to it. So I'd been looking around for some science to back up these thoughts. And I came across a report um, on the Mekong Delta that showed that the bombings had, over time, altered um, hydrology and soils in the region. In the aftermath. And that was really the one of the first um, solid pieces of science I'd come across that referred to this new branch of science in bombings.
0: So why did the U.S. drop so many bombs during the war? What was the idea? What was the strategy behind that?
1: Well, that's a good question. There were two main um, official sort of objectives. One was to stop movement along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which connected north and south Vietnam. And it ran through Laos and also Cambodia in the southern part of Laos. And then in the north, it was to stop the communist Pathet Lao movement. But really, it ended up being sort of a free-for-all because the entire country was bombed. All provinces ended up being bombed. And there have been numerous reports since um, of pilots who were based in Thailand and sent to Vietnam to drop bombs over Vietnam. But if for some reason they couldn't, on their way back to base, they would un- unload them in Laos.
0: So uh let's talk about all these bomb craters uh, almost half a century after they were formed the village that that you went to is is full of them uh they're just they're all over these three countries um and and this brings us to a, to this whole new field of science with a rather uh, imposing name bomb turbation which is kind of a, a mashup of bombing and uh turbation. Uh, and it turns out there are all kinds of turbation. Uh, to Talk about that.
1: Sure. Within soil science, you have the general notion that soils are constantly being mixed, the different layers or the different horizons that form um, soils. And that, that can happen through uh, many different ways, through people digging or animals digging through the soil, it can happen, say, through an earthquake, it can happen with tree roots, Um, it can happen through ice. And so you have all these different ways that these soil layers are constantly being moved around. Then, um, scientists found out that it actually also happens with explosive munitions, thus bomb-turbation.
0: And uh, tell us about uh, the scientist Joseph Huey, uh, the father of for How did you find him?
1: <laughs> well, he <laughs> any reference I came across to turbation always led back to him. It's really pretty much his field. And so he's a, a professor of geography at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. And when he was a grad student in Michigan around 2001-ish, He uh, was out doing some field work near a military training camp, and he talked about collecting his soils, but all around him, he could hear these explosions as they were doing exercises. And so when he went back into the lab, his advisor said to him, he was sort of joking, chuckling, "'Yeah, Joe, how about bomb turbation as a form of, of soil science?' And he wrote it down in his notebook. He said, yeah, hmm, that's a cool topic. I have to look into that. And he did. He really kind of made it his own field.
0: Where and how does uh, Professor Hupi do his work?
1: Well, he has had two primary areas of research in this field. Uh, the first was in Verdun in France. And the second in Khe Sanh in Vietnam, and both of these areas were uh, sites of major major battles, some of the most cataclysmic battles of all time.
0: Verdun uh, was was a hundred years ago, right? World War One,
1: right? Nineteen sixteen. It covered about two hundred square kilometers, in which uh, sixty million rounds of artillery were fired.
0: And uh, so it's a hundred years later, and what's there now?
1: A lot of craters covered in vegetation which actually is a very different landscape from before the war before the war that area had been populated it was an agricultural area but after the war he found that it was it was almost left like a memorial and in many cases it actually is um, it has been turned into a memorial site and so because people left that allowed vegetation to return as it hadn't been previously before the war. and Today, um, with all of these craters and this vegetation growing throughout, Hupe found that a lot of organic material and water would collect in the bottoms of the craters. The drainage has been altered through this massive cratering. Runoff has been altered, and it's, it's created a totally different system of soil generation.
0: And this is 100 years later, uh, coming back to Southeast Asia, uh, which is almost 50 years ago now. What did he find there?
1: So in Khe Sanh, this, um, this was a different environment uh, up high in the mountains uh, bordering Vietnam and Laos. And this was the site of a 77 day battle in 1968, massive bombardment. So he found a lot of unexploded ordnance, which was quite dangerous. Um, Again, he found lots and lots of craters, but he also found that uh, differently from Verdun, the area around Quezon has been populated since the war. The population in Vietnam has increased dramatically. People have moved into the region. They've started using it. They've started growing coffee in some of these areas. They've started grazing cattle around the craters. Cattle don't like to go inside the craters. So he found vegetation growing within a lot of the craters, but not around the, the edges where the cattle have been grazing. And this started to change Hupe's thinking on just what exactly bomb turbation means or what its implications are, because he realized that it's more than just a change in the soil, a change in the landscape. It's also, it's like a catalyst for um, setting the land on a different path of development in terms of the way people use the land.
0: And this is a perfect segue to yet another new word, uh, at least new to me, the Anthropocene, uh, what is that?
1: So that is um, the term for a proposed new era, essentially, in the Earth's time scale, separate from the Holocene, which began after the last major ice age. Many scientists now say that humans have altered um, the Earth's systems to such an extent that we're in a totally different time period.
0: Coming back to the places you went to in Laos... It sounds as if the uh, people there have kind of made their peace with all these craters.
1: Well, you know, I wouldn't exactly say that they've made peace with them. I'd say that they live among them and that the craters have almost become a natural part of their daily life. Um, But I, I hesitate to say that they've made peace with them because I have also found in talking to people about the craters that they trigger a lot of hard memories especially for people who lived through the bombings when they look at the craters around them they're sort of rushed with all these memories that are really difficult to bear
0: your uh, colleague and husband Jerry Redfern made a video uh, to go along with your story it'll be um, on our on our website at undark.org um, and there's some very poignant footage with a woman who remembers the bombing can can you tell us about them
1: Yeah, so she lives in the north of the country in a province called Pongsali. And uh, we'd actually met her before, about six years ago, and then returned this year to talk with her again. She and her sister both survived um, the the bombing campaign, and their house was bombed. Their house was destroyed. Um, Her sister was injured. It's um, talking with her, she broke down into tears which happens a lot when you talk to people who have lived through that time, it, it brought on a lot of difficult memories. But she, uh, like everyone else in this village, they live among all these craters. And today, you know, they, they have to live with them. So they've put them to use. Um, some, some have been turned into gardens. Some have been filled in just so they can be built on top of. Some, some people plant trees inside the craters or use them as nurseries because they find that uh, the craters actually, they hold more moisture in the dry season. So they'll start growing small trees and then transplant them. Um, other craters are turned into garbage dumps just because it's practical to do it.
0: So they're, they're uh, actually using these craters to grow crops in, to raise fish in. Um, are there environmental consequences of that?
1: That's a really good question. I did, I, I tried to get at that with Hoopie. And he did a little poking around in Verdun on whether the... Um, the metals from all of these, these bombs or the explosives themselves have left residues or things that are harmful in the soil. And so he came back with several samples, but it, the studies were very minimal and he didn't really want to make any um, conclusive statements about that, but he didn't find any evidence that that munitions would leave um, a harmful residue. Agent Orange, on the other hand, um, chemical weapons—that's that's another area entirely.
0: And every now and then, one of these bombs, uh, one of these unexploded bombs, uh, explodes.
1: That's true. It's it actually happens um, quite often, and in fact, again, in that village in Ponsali, where we talked to the the woman at length about her memories and the horses and her house being bombed and all of that. Um, that's a, it's, a, it's a province that doesn't receive any clearance funding currently. So there's a lot of leftover ordinance. And when people find it, they don't have anybody to call to destroy it. So sometimes farmers try to move it to keep it out of, you know, harm's way to keep it away from kids or kids will find it. Um, and when we were there, we talked to a woman, for example, who. Uh, her relative had started a garbage fire behind the house just the week before It was a cold time of year, and um, people were burning fires, and in this case, they were burning some leaves, and it exploded, and it knocked her to the ground.
0: It would be hard to overstate the number, there's just sheer numbers of bombs uh, that were that were dropped. Uh, some of them are are really tiny.
1: At the end of war, there were an estimated 80 million left in the ground, unexploded. Most of them are um, cluster munitions, or submunitions, which are about the size of a baseball. Now nobody knows for sure, because the data on the, the bombings, it's actually quite sketchy, but um, the best we can estimate is that there were about 80 million at the end of war, and not very many have been removed. So there are still tens of millions. And one thing I can definitely say is that everybody I've ever talked to involved in studying the aftermath of these bombings, whether it's in soil science or in um, UXO accidents, bomb accidents, or in you know the long-term health and rehabilitation issues resulting from this, everybody has said there's not enough funding.
0: So- Half a century after the Vietnam War, after the uh, United States dropped all these bombs in Southeast Asia, we're still grappling with the after effects of it all. And it it sounds like we're kind of uncertain about what, uh, what all this bombing led to.
1: That's a really good way of putting it, because you're right nobody knows the full extent of the consequences of this bombing campaign. We know that there are millions and millions of bombs left in the ground. We know that the landscape is littered in craters. Uh, We know that there were chemicals used in several regions, but we we don't know the full extent of the consequences.
0: Well, Karen Coates, uh, what an amazing story. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us about it.
1: Well, thank you for having me and allowing me to talk about it.
0: Karen Coates is a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism and the author of the book Eternal Harvest, The Legacy of American Bombs in Laos. Her article, Bombscapes, is on our website, undark.org, along with a video by Jerry Redfram. For our tracker segment on science and the media, we welcome a new monthly columnist, Seth Manukin. Seth is a veteran journalist and author who's written books on both science and the media, most recently, The Panic Virus, the True Story Behind the Vaccine Autism Controversy. He's also director of the Graduate Program in Science Writing at MIT. Seth, welcome to *Undark*. Thank you for having me here. So uh, let's get right to the subject of your column this month, a man who for most of his life was known only by his
2: initials. Tell us the story of H.M. So H.M., as he was known uh, from the mid-50s until his death in 2008, was a Connecticut resident with epilepsy named Henry Mollison. And he had really, really severe epilepsy. And after years of treatment, he was in his late 20s uh, in 1953. He went to a surgeon, what was called a psychosurgeon at the time, a, a brain surgeon. And the brain surgeon, a gentleman named William Beecher Scoville, suggested an operation to remove both of Henry's medial temporal lobes. This is is a part of the brain that does what? Well, that's a good question. And at the time, this was during an era of really intense brain mapping. People were trying to figure out what areas of the brain were responsible for what capacities. And so Scoville, the surgeon, when he removed both sides, he did not stop... Henry mollison's seizures, but he did rob him of the ability to remember more than 30 seconds in the past. So from that moment on, he was living in sort of a, a, an eternal present. And in doing that, he became the most studied human test subject of all time. Uh, for the rest of his life, he essentially, his his job, his role uh, was to be a test subject.
0: And he came under the um, the care or he became a study subject of a well-known researcher named Brenda Milner. And then Milner's protege was a professor at MIT named uh, Suzanne Corkin.
2: Yes, so Brenda Milner, she collaborated with Scoville, the surgeon, on the first paper about HM. And she was the person, Milner was the person, who really did the revolutionary early research that showed that previous to Mollison, The theory had always been that memories were formed in the brain as a whole. There wasn't any one area. It sort of depended on the interaction of all different areas of the brain. And Henry clearly showed that that was not true. Um, And then exactly as you said, Milner had a grad student named Suzanne Corkin who subsequently went to MIT. And from the 60s on, all of the research done on Mollison came through MIT. Um, and from 1977 until Mollison's death in 2008, Suzanne Corkin was the person in charge of all of that. And she took her role as, as a sort of both caretaker and gatekeeper very seriously. Ended up after Henry died, she was the person who announced to the public what his name was. She wrote a, a biography of him after his death called Permanent Present Tense. And she was very involved in, in really most aspects of his, his life for the last... You know, decades.
0: So it's hard to overstate the importance of uh, Henry Mollison uh, in the study of of human memories. As as you said, he's probably the most important patient in history. And and this was kind of a feel good story until just uh, uh, this August when the New York Times Magazine published a cover story that was an excerpt from a new book called Patient H M.
2: Uh, then all hell broke loose. How come? So Patient H.M. is a fascinating book, which I also uh, reviewed for the New York Times Book Review. It's a book that when you pick up, it's hard to put down, although it's also oftentimes very frustrating. But I think the most pertinent thing about Luke Dittrick, the author and journalist, is that he does not come at it as a dispassionate observer. He's the grandson of Scoville, the surgeon who performed the operation. And his mother was best friends growing up with Suzanne Corkin, the MIT researcher who did decades and decades of research uh, on Mollison um, right up until his death. And so the majority of the book really delves into Dittrick's Family History in pretty painful and explicit ways, Dietrich essentially ends up comparing his grandfather to a Nazi war criminal, and all but says explicitly that he violated the the Nuremberg code what 's interesting is that the Times magazine excerpt really ignored all of that and focused almost exclusively on the last 20% of the book or so that dealt with Suzanne Corkin. And as hard as Dietrich was on his grandfather, he was equally hard on Suzanne Corkin. And there are a couple of main sort of charges that he makes. After Henry died and his brain was um, removed and then dissected, the neuroanatomist who did the dissection identified a second lesion in his brain besides the fact that he was missing his medial temporal lobes. And by that point the neuroanatomist and Suzanne Corkin already were feuding. And so the neuroanatomist submitted a paper without alerting Suzanne, you know, saying here's this other lesion that we never knew about and we really need to acknowledge that and and look into what that might mean. And so what Dietrich accuses Corkin of doing is essentially trying to squash that paper because it would have then thrown all of her decades of research into doubt. Um, Another one of the really shocking things was he and he has her on tape saying that she was in the process of shredding her documents on HM. And it sort of seems like the implication there is because she, again, is worried about other researchers' going over that and misinterpreting or reinterpreting work that she had done. So that's the big second charge. And then the third charge, which I think overall got the least amount of attention, but is the one that I found both most persuasive and most interesting, is one thing that's not a charge, it's a, it's a fact, and that's that Corkin and MIT let Mollison sign his own consent forms um, for a 12-year period from 1980 to 1992. And then Dietrich lays out in pretty serious detail the way that Corkin was involved in arranging for a conservator who essentially then just rubber stamped all future experiments, it seems. And in addition to that, donated Henry's brain to MIT and MGH. Dr. Corkin died last May.
0: Uh, so she she's not able to uh, speak for herself about this uh, new book. But after the excerpt appeared in the Times Magazine, some of her colleagues took great umbrage. Yeah. So
2: that was where the big kerfuffle was. All of this comes out in uh, the New York Times Magazine. I think it was a Wednesday that it was posted online. And by Friday, uh, there were 200 signatories to a letter of scientists, both at MIT and around the country and around the world, saying that uh, this was a biased and unfair attack on on Suzanne Corkin. And that was subsequently followed by more detailed letters and an internal, something of an internal investigation at MIT looking into some of these charges.
0: So it sounds like this is quite a tangle with scientists um, kind of rising up in protest against a a piece of journalism that uh, you yourself find uh, very mixed. What is the kind of larger uh, lesson here about what happens when journalists try to write about science?
2: Well, I think, I mean, there there are a couple of different things that I think are really interesting. One is, you know, I, I am not someone who went to journalism school. I believe that journalism is a trade that you can learn. But I think that this highlights the need for some specialized knowledge in some areas of journalism. And I think Dietrich, if he had some more experience working with scientists and understood some of the conventions, I think he might have interpreted some of the information that he got somewhat differently. Um, But another really interesting tension is this sense among some scientists that this was really essentially an act of betrayal, that writing this so soon after Suzanne Corkin died was unnecessarily cruel, and that attacking a researcher um, and they feel like baselessly attacking a researcher is kind of a, 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 an effort to gin up attention for book sales and scandal at the expense of you know of truth. And so you have this interesting tension where, and I think you you this comes up again and again in science journalism where scientists can confuse. The role of a science reporter as being a cheerleader for science or being a skeptical observer of science, and I think you saw that come out here.
0: Yeah, when when we cheerlead, we're we're okay, um, and when we we criticize, we can be accused of sensationalizing or oversimplifying.
2: Or you know, we're obviously living in a in an historical moment where there's a fair amount of distrust of science. You know, I've heard personally people say that when there are criticisms of of science, when these come to light, it's essentially giving weight to people who would deny the veracity of science and 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 deny that science is really the best tool that we have for interpreting and understanding the world around us. Another interesting thing I think here is that you know I I I thought it was fascinating that you had two hundred scientists in a space of forty eight hours or less signing on and saying a piece was unbiased and unfair. There's no possible way that those 200 scientists were able to go through this 7,700-word excerpt and really spend time investigating and thinking about all of the different charges that were in there. So it felt very much to me like a knee-jerk reaction. A more appropriate response might have been, you know, instead of saying this is biased and unfair, saying, this does not represent the person we know. And like anything that comes to light, we're now going to look into it and we are not going to let our personal feelings guide our conclusions. But that is not what you saw. And in conversation, I've talked with a lot of brain and memory researchers and the, the ways that they are speaking negatively about Luke Dietrich in Either things that I know to be untrue, or show an equally unsophisticated understanding of how the media works as to what they're accusing Dittrich of, with no apparent irony, is is something that also is is going on, and I think is is really interesting.
0: Seth Manuchen is the new tracker columnist for Undark. Seth, many thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. In the classic children's book Stella Luna, a baby bat is separated from her mother and is adopted by a family of birds. The book is almost a quarter of a century old, but the author Janelle Cannon hasn't lost her enthusiasm for bats. Reporter James Perla joined her on a visit to a rainforest in Costa Rica in search of the real thing. Janelle Cannon is on a mission. A research assistant at
3: Osa Conservation in the center of the Rio Piro Rainforest in Costa Rica found a rare bat roosting in broad daylight on a nearby trail. It's a hot and humid day as we trudge through the muddy paths in the dense Rio Piro Rainforest. But nothing's getting in the way of Janelle's excitement.
4: All right, mucho gusta.
3: <laughs> she clutches her camera, hoping to get a close-up to sketch when she gets back home. After we cross over the bridge, we begin to tiptoe and whisper as we approach the bat. It's hanging from a palm leaf about six feet from the trail, and it's white.
4: When their wings are out, they're almost transparent, so they're sort of ethereal.
3: The bat is a northern ghost bat, a rare species of bat found in the tropics.
4: Um, they're so unusual, white bats are just kind of rare, so. You notice that it's hanging under the leaf when the sun shines through. It reflects green light on the bat, so that it's a form of camouflage. And I would have walked right by. I wouldn't have seen him.
3: <laughs> Janelle is not a biologist. She's not a researcher or a conservationist. She just really, really likes bats. It's a fascination that was the subject of her 1993 children's classic Stella Luna, about a female megabat. Janelle frequently takes trips to see bats in their natural habitat, so she's full of interesting tidbits.
4: Uh, This guy looks like um, it's a fast-flying bat uh, that echolocates through its mouth. This is my guest looking at its face, and then the, the, and I think it's more of a narrow-winged bat. The forearm is extremely long. Uh, See that, how long, that's the elbow right there. So, you know, of course it makes a difference in the length of the wing when it's stretched out. Some bats don't have that same proportion, and it's it's very curved too. Interesting.
3: On the walk back from the bat spotting, we cool down in a little stream bisecting the path, and I ask her, Are there any bats that fish? Yeah.
4: Tropical bats? Yeah. They are actually, here, especially if we you know put nets across some of the rivers, we could catch fishing bats. But they uh, echolocate along. You know, rivers and if a fish surfaces um, it causes a ripple and the bat's able to detect it and they'll swoop down like an eagle or an osprey and they have a huge great like feet and they're able to scoop the fish up
3: most bats catch moths and other insects through echolocation but here in central and south america you also have bats that catch fish thanks to the diversity of the rainforest All told, Janelle says there are about 1,300 species of bats around the world.
4: They're um, one of the most largest mammal families in the world, second only to rodents. And because of their diversity they and how many uh, ecological jobs that they do from regenerating forests by dispersing seeds, pollinating plants, eating crop, destroying insects...
3: Bats play an important role in ecosystems worldwide, and they're uniquely adapted to live in virtually all environments. In more developed parts of the world, bats provide a natural pest control service for farmers. They're also important pollinators. Over 300 species of fruit depend on bats for pollination, including mangoes, bananas, and guava. So yeah, that $2 mango you get at the farmer's market would be a lot less sweet and more expensive if it weren't for bats.
4: That basically is just the scope of how bats fit in. I can't even imagine what would happen to the ecosystem if they were to suddenly disappear. Like with the white-nose syndrome, millions of the hibernating bats in the United States have died in just a matter of few years.
3: Janelle's concern for bats is well-founded. The white nose syndrome, a nasty fungal disease that came to North America from Eurasia in 2006, has already threatened bat populations on apocalyptic proportions.
4: So, what happened is, at least in theory, is that cavers explored, you know, European caves and then brought this fungus in on their gear and their boots, and it uh, began to. It's very contagious, so. It just swept through the bat populations in the United States. Yeah. But since they most bats have only one pup per year, it'll take a very long time for the population to rebuild. And and you know it's very important that their habitat and their food sources are, you know, kept in good order for them to be able to come back. So.
3: Well, Janelle doesn't have any bat apocalypse books on the horizon. for art and advocacy educate people about the importance of bats worldwide.
4: I think kids really respond to pictures. I mean, that's why picture books are so popular. So art, you know, is a really, has, in that application, has a great potential to entertain and educate kids and to download a lot of information very quickly, you know, creating wonder and, and you know, curiosity and that. So.
3: As Janelle and I head back to home base for some freshly squeezed mango juice, she says nothing sweeter than knowing the bats she loves are safe and thriving here in the Costa Rican rainforest.
4: Anytime I see them alive where they're supposed to be, it makes me happy.
3: For Undark, I'm James Perla.
0: And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the night science journalism program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.